0: in the book of Isaiah today, Isaiah chapter 33. So if you would, please grab a Bible and turn there with me. If you don't have one with you, we have some stacks of Bibles over here, some stacks of Bibles over there. I'd love for you to have one so that you can follow along in the Word with us. Again, that's Isaiah chapter 33. And also, I know there's some visiting here with us this morning. It's glad, I'm glad, very glad to have you with us. Um, we normally, on Sunday mornings, we go through entire books of the Bible at a time. And what we're doing right now is we're going through the Gospel of John. um, And we're also going through the book of Isaiah kind of simultaneously. So, we alternate back and forth. And this morning we find ourselves back in Isaiah. We have gone all the way through chapters 1 through 32. And we have now arrived at chapter 33, verse 1. And so, that's where we begin today. Isaiah 33. And I will read... Uh, We'll start just by reading these first six verses together, and uh, we'll read the rest as we get to it uh, this morning. So let's read. It says, Ah, you destroyer, who yourself have not been destroyed, you traitor, whom none has betrayed. When you have ceased to destroy, you will be destroyed, and when you have finished betraying, they will betray you. O Lord, be gracious to us, we wait for you. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in time of trouble. At the tumultuous noise, peoples flee. And when you lift up, nations are scattered, and your spoil is gathered as the caterpillar gathers, and locusts leap, it's leapt upon. The Lord is exalted, for He dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness. He will be the stability of your times. Abundance of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. And let's stop right there this morning. Now Isaiah has been going through kind of a little discourse here on... On the Assyrian threat and if that's something that that doesn't really sound very interesting um, I understand but what it does help with is to understand the context that Isaiah wrote Isaiah chapter 33 in what is that context Isaiah chapter 33 was written surrounding the events that we find in 2 Kings chapter 18 and I'll I'll kind of summarize that for you otherwise not much of what we read here is going to make a whole lot of sense So when it says in verse 1, Ah, you destroyer, you have not been destroyed, you traitor, betrayed. uh, you will. And then it says at the end, When you have finished betraying, they will betray you. What is all that talking about? Well, it's talking about a historical event, an historical reality. And so there's a prophecy here. Let's talk about what that means here. In the fourth year of Hezekiah's reign, now remember Hezekiah was young. He was 25 when he started ruling, so 29-year-old. 29-year-old is, is ruling the southern kingdom. And I remember that Israel is split, split into two kingdoms right now. There's a northern kingdom. There's a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom uh, is being attacked by Assyria. And they are ruled at this point by a guy named Shalmaneser. And uh, they're at battle with them for about three years, and eventually they win. Okay, long story short. They win the battle. Assyria takes over the northern kingdom. And actually when we were in the Gospel of John, remember we were talking about the Samaritans and how they became a mixed race and that's why there was all this animosity between Jews and Samaritans. Well, this is the event that led to that because when they, when they were attacked, uh, some of them were exiled but some of them stayed and then they were intermarried and they created this mixed race anyway. So this is the historical event that we're talking about. Boil this down to this, if this is God's people, remember Israel is God's people, God's chosen people, but they are just attacked by this large army, and they lose, and everything they know is gone, and they are led off into exile, and they're they're intermixed with all these different people, bad stuff happening. Now remember this is the northern kingdom, we're about to talk about how this affects the southern kingdom here, but... Uh, you might have some questions. Why did this happen to them? Why did God allow this to happen to his people? How could the Lord let his people be treated this way? These may be some of the questions we might have. Second Kings 18, 11, and 12 tells us why these things happened to the northern kingdom. And it's significant for us. Why did this happen? Why did God allow his people to be destroyed, defeated in battle? If he is truly the sovereign king of the universe, could he have prevented them from even coming? Prevented them from being in battle with his people. If he is sovereign, then yes, he could have. Could he have let them win instead of lose the battle? Yes, he could have. But why did the Lord choose to allow his people to lose this battle and be led off into captivity? 2 Kings 18, 11, and 12. The king of Assyria carried away the Israelites to Assyria, and they put them in several different cities. And verse 12 says, because, this is why, this is why all this happened. This is why they lost the battle. This is why they were carried away. Listen to this. It's not the answer maybe you'd expect. Verse 12, because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, but they transgressed His covenant. Even all that Moses the servant the Lord had commanded, they neither listened nor obeyed. Why did this godless army come to the land of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, win a battle and lead God's people off, is it because this caught God off guard and he wasn't prepared for this army? This army was too much for God to handle. Could that have been it? Well, obviously it wasn't. So God intended, this is important, God intended, purposed, that a godless army would rise up and go and destroy his people and lead them off into captivity and lead them down a road that was difficult. God intended that. Why did this happen? Because they transgressed the Lord their God. That's why. Not because these people were angry. Not because they wanted their land. It had nothing to do with Assyria. But because the Lord had purposed it. That's why it happened. Okay. Were they not deserving? Was the northern kingdom deserving of that? Really? Well, yeah, they were. Remember Isaiah 10, 5 and 6. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. The staff in their hands is my fury. My fury. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. So woe to the people doing the damage, but the people doing the damage is only being done because I'm holding them in my hand as an axe to cut them down. But still they are held accountable for their sin. Now it's very complicated. We spent a lot of time on that during that passage. So um, go back and watch that if you weren't here for that. Uh, All boils down to this. This is in your notes. This prophetic event helps continue on the theme that we find in Isaiah, that there is no event in all of history, past, present, or future, that escapes the sovereign hand of God. No event. Listen to some of these passages. These are just really short passages. Maybe ones that you haven't thought of in a while. Maybe ones that were kind of glazed over when you read. But Amos 3.6, remember this. Is a trumpet blown in a city and people are not afraid? Now, first of all, the answer to that question is, well, yes, people are afraid because that means we're being invaded, right? Okay, and then the next question is supposed to give the same answers. The answer should be yes, but listen to the question. So, is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Well, yes, they're afraid. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Well, I guess the answer to that is yes, too. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Isaiah 45, 7. I form light. I create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Job 2, 9 and 10. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In this Job did not sin with his lips. Could it be that these events happen within the sovereignty of God and not outside the sovereignty of God? Think of the most terrible event that that you know of. Could it be that that event did not escape the sovereign hand of God? Could it be? Is God ever to blame for anything that we might call evil or bad, sinful? Now, God is never to blame because what he does is he uses sinful Human beings, sinful circumstances, to accomplish his purposes. You remember this happened with Joseph and his brothers? What you intended for evil, God intended for good. You remember that situation? Okay, so what that was, and there's a little fancy word for that, it's called concurrence. And what that means is that God is using sinful man, and so sinful man is held accountable for his sin, but yet God is never held accountable for his sin, but yet he's accompli- accomplishing his purposes. Perfectly and without sin. The simplest example of that is the cross of Jesus Christ. Could salvation have been accomplished without murder and hate for Jesus Christ? No. But did God intend it and purpose it? Yes. Was God held accountable for that hate and murder? No, the sinful men were. But did God purpose it? Well, absolutely, yes, He did. You're going to see that theme all throughout Scripture. Is it difficult to really wrap your head around? Yes. And and if it's not, then I think maybe you're not understanding the depth of it. If it's not a difficult concept, then I think we're not really going to the depths that this goes. There is no event in your personal life that escapes the sovereign hand of God. Please be comforted by that fact. There is never anything that catches God off guard. And he says, whoa, okay, let me rethink about how am I going to respond to that? How am I going to deal with that? God doesn't react to human beings. God is the cause. Okay, if we are able to do things out of God's sovereignty, then we become sovereign and God becomes the one that serves us. Who is the sovereign one? God, certainly. Now, all that to say, this prophecy of the northern kingdom being defeated and led away by Assyria, God did it to punish Israel. But God was not held accountable for the murder, right? For the sin. Ten years later, remember this happened? The fourth year of Hezekiah's reign in the southern kingdom. So he's a 29-year-old guy. And what he sees is the northern kingdom is defeated and led astray. And there were more people in the northern kingdom. So now ten years later, Okay, this same group, this, these Assyrians, led by another guy who has an even cooler name, Sennacherib, um, he is now leading the Assyrian army and he comes against the southern kingdom. Now he's still a young guy, still in his 30s. Ten years ago, this army wiped out a bigger kingdom, and now they've come for me. Do you think he's scared? I would say he probably is. He's terrified. So here's what happens. Again, I'm going to say long story short. Read about this in 2 Kings 18. It says, 2 Kings 18, I'm just going to read just a few verses here from it. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came against the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria and said, I have done wrong. Withdraw from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will bear. Stop right there. What he's saying is, King of a foreign godless army, you have come against me. Clearly I've done something wrong in your sight. Forgive me, uh, you're bigger than me. What can I give you that would make you go away? That's what he's saying. King of Assyria required Hezekiah to pay 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. It's a simple payoff. Pay me silver and gold and we'll go away. We'll leave you alone. And so here's what Hezekiah did. King of Judah. Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. At that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorposts that Hezekiah king of Judah had overlaid. He did it himself, and he gave it to the king of Assyria. Where did he get his payoff money? From the temple? Was that a good idea or a bad idea? <laughs> it was probably a bad idea. So you who betrayed, you will soon be betrayed. You traitor, you will become betrayed betrayed yourself you see who this is referring to so this is the prophecy of the event that would happen i want to look next at the plea so this is this is the event that assyria comes and they try to pay off uh, they try to pay off assyria so they wouldn't hurt them uh, the plea look at verses two through four it says "O oh lord now i notice there's a little break here there is in my text there probably isn't yours O Lord, be gracious to us, we wait for you. Be our arm every morning, salvation in time of trouble. Now, just wait here a second. Was this Hezekiah's plea? O Lord, be gracious to you, we wait for you. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in time of trouble. What was his salvation in time of trouble? I'm going to pay you off with gold from the house of the Lord. That was his salvation in time of trouble. Did he wait for the Lord? Did he say, God, you are my salvation. Never shall it be that I would disgrace the house of the Lord. Did he say that? But no, he said, I'm going to take matters in my own hand. What is it going to take for you to go away? I want to save myself here. I'm going to give you gold and silver. I'm going to get it from the house of the Lord. I'm going to give it to you. So leave me alone. The bad news about that is that they said, thanks for all the gold and silver, but we're going to attack you anyway. I mean, isn't that kind of what happens with bad people? Yeah, give me all the, eh, never mind. I changed my mind. Oh, Lord, be gracious to us. So Hezekiah prays. And it's interesting how the book of Isaiah and this story line up because what happens is that Hezekiah, king of Judah, listen to this. Look, These are historical realities that God was working in human history. Hezekiah sends for Isaiah the prophet. The guy's words that we're reading right now. Historically, Hezekiah sends for Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah, Isaiah says, yeah, you're, you're, you're in a big mess here. And... So Hezekiah prays and then the Lord speaks to Isaiah and he sends a servant and he says, go tell Hezekiah this message from God. But here's the prayer that he prays. This is the prayer that Hezekiah prays after he tries to buy himself out of trouble. After he tries to buy himself out of trouble, says, well, that didn't work. They're coming anyway. I guess I better pray now. First of all, isn't that basically exactly how we work? You try what you can do first and then you're like, well, I have failed. I guess I'll have to pray now because I have nothing left but isn't a mercy of God that things that we try fail so that we might be led to our knees and pray because God is the only thing I have left I've tried everything else thank goodness that failed because it helps me to be reminded that God is the one I need to be seeking he is my salvation he is my arm in times of trouble I need to be reminded of that he says, this is Hezekiah's prayer. So now, O Lord, please save us from the hand and all these kingdoms of the earth that they may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. In other words, that's 2 Kings 19, 19. In other words, he knows he messed up and now he says, God, okay, let's start from scratch. You kind of intervene now. By the way, if you're ever saying God intervened, God is already intervening. do you know that? Something horrible happens in your life. Don't you know that God is already intervening? God is not absent from your life ever. From the course of human history, past, present, future, God is there. Now you might be blind to Him, certainly. But He is never gone, ever. This is in your notes. I think it's just important to be reminded of. It is always, always, always right to pray when you find yourself in distress. But you might say, but what if I brought the distress on myself? Isn't that kind of a good question? Have you ever tricked yourself into thinking, well, I brought this on myself. I better fix it myself. So I'm not going to bother God with something that I did myself. Have you, even slightly, have you ever thought that? Because I don't want to be alone. Can I get some kind of head nod if someone agrees with me? Okay, thank you. Because I think that way sometimes, right? I, I, man, I messed up. And then I'm like, whoa, that brought me real low. So I better not go to God. I need to fix this first, get myself out of the situation, and then I'll go to God. Uh, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. Listen to the prayer of David, Psalm 143, 1 and 2. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. Isn't that what we need? In your faithfulness, answer me. In your righteousness. And then he says, But enter not into judgment with me, for no one living is righteous before you. No one living is righteous before you. So, by the way, before you even did that thing that you messed up, you had already messed up more than you ever even know. So, don't worry about the one little event. Your entire life has been in rebellion to God. Always go to God in prayer. Always, you caused it. Admit your sin and go to Him in prayer. He is your salvation. Okay, so there is the plea, the purpose. What was the purpose of all of this? Let's look at it. This story, this historical incident, has such an amazing ending. And I just, I just want to, I just want to reiterate, this is a, a historical reality. This, this, this stuff that really happened. I know it's really difficult for our. Culture, because there are so many stories that we want that are just fake and we try to make them real. Listen, what I'm about to tell you here this is a real thing that actually happened. Really, really happened. It sounds made up, sound, it would make a really good movie. It says in Isaiah 33 5 and 6, here's really the purpose, and this is the summary of it the Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness. He will be the stability of your times, abundance of salvation, wisdom, knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. He is everything. And and, and, and everyone will see it eventually. Isaiah sends word to Hezekiah that his prayer from the Lord has been heard and answered. I'm sure there was a great sigh of relief from Hezekiah. Oh, the Lord is going to deliver us from Assyria. Here's what the Lord said regarding Assyria. So Isaiah sends word to Hezekiah, and he says, let me tell you what I'm going to do to Assyria. 2 Kings 19, 25 through 28. Have you not heard that I, listen listen to the wording here. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned it from days of old, what I now bring to pass. Do you hear that wording? That you, Assyria, should turn from these fortified cities into heaps of ruins. Wait, wait, wait. Who planned that? God planned it. God intended it. While their inhabitants are sown short of strength, they are dismayed. They are confounded. They become like plants of the field and tender grass, like grass on housetops, blighted before it's grown. But I know you're sitting down, and you're going out, and you're coming in, and you're raging against me. Remember, this is God's word to Assyria. Because you have raged against me and your complacency has come to my ears. Listen to what God is going to do to him. I will put my hook in your nose, my bit in your mouth, and I will turn you back by the way which you came. That's our God. Listen to what he did. That very night, God sent his angel and killed 185,000 of the Assyrian soldiers. And they said, We better leave. And they went right back where they came from. Who did that? Our God did that. If our God can do that, can he do something in our small circumstances that we think are just too far beyond God's reach or his grasp or his sovereignty or his power? Think again. He certainly can. But here's the point. Simply put, the sovereign creator will be exalted in his creation. He will be. The sovereign creator will be exalted in his creation. That's in your notes. There is no chance that he will not. You understand? There is no chance that the sovereign king of the universe is going to allow someone else to be exalted over him. No chance he will be exalted in his creation. What does it mean to exalt something? It means to lift it up, right? Remember the words in Matthew 23, 12, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, whoever humbles himself will be exalted. You remember those words? This is the same word used in John 3:14 that we just studied on Sunday morning. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. It's the same word that we have translated exalt. It means to be lifted up. Now, God will be lifted up in his creation. He will be shown to be the sovereign king of the universe, the ruler, the reign, the one who reigns over his creation. But sometimes to our eyes, do we see that things are otherwise? Sometimes does it seem like God is not in control? Does it sometimes seem that evil is winning? Sometimes seem like the threats are too large? It does, doesn't it? Remember Colossians 1 15 through 17. He is Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, all things, in heaven and on earth, visible or invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, or, or, or authorities, whatever it is, all things were created through him and for him. Do you think any created thing is going to be exalted over its creator? All things, Assyria, created by him and for him. Whatever it is in your life, created by God and for God, it will not be exalted over him. But God may use this horrible thing in your life to let the Lord be exalted in your heart. He is already exalted in reality. You understand? No one can knock him off his throne. But in your heart, he may not be sitting as exalted. And so God may send certain things in your life that he might bring you down so that you might admit, Oh, God is sovereign. God is the one that's sovereign, nothing else. So verses 7 through 24 that we're going to go through a bit quicker than we did the rest of the text shows how God is exalted in his creation. So let's read it. All right, this is Isaiah 33. How is God exalted? So here's where we come from. There was a prophecy about this historical event. There was the plea that the Lord needs to be gracious to us right, about this event and the purpose that God had in this event to show himself as exalted. Okay, so let's just look at the rest of the text here. Let's look at verses 7 through uh, 14. Behold, heroes in the cities, in the, in, uh, heroes cry in the streets, the envoys of peace, they weep bitterly, the highways lay waste, the traveler ceases, covenants are broken, cities are despised, there is no regard for man, the land mourns and languishes. You getting the mental image here of a pretty broken down city? It's what it is. Lebanon is confounded, Sharon is like a desert, Bashan and Carmel shake off their leaves. Verse 10, now I will arise, says the Lord. I will lift myself up, and now I will be exalted. Pause right there. We're going to pick up back at verse 11, but what did God do in order to exalt himself? He destroys, and he shows the weakness of everything else. He brings down the city to show that he is stronger. He brings down the land to show that he is stronger. He brings down nations to show that he is stronger. You see, that's what he's doing. He's bringing everything else down so that, you might look and say, who did this? So he says, now that I have brought all things low, I will lift myself up. Verse 11, you conceive chaff, you give birth to stubble. Your breath is a fire that will consume you. All the peoples will be as burned like lime, like, uh, like thorns cut down that are burned in the fire. Hear you who are far off what I have done, you who are near, acknowledge my might. See, that's what God wants. Acknowledge that I have done this. The sinners in Zion are afraid. They tremble, seizing the godless. Who among us can dwell with that consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? So the image we have here is chaos. The people in the land are broken. There is a supreme power, but it's been cut down. That is the nations, the land, the people. And that's exactly what he's doing. And so I have this in your notes. This is really just kind of a summary of what's happening. That there is no person great enough, and there is no nation powerful enough and there is no land rich enough to save humanity. No person, no leader is going to be the savior of humanity or of a nation. It's not going to happen. No nation powerful enough. Whatever nation is on your mind, some Some people are very political in their thinking, and you have political powers on your mind. Which one do you see as the strongest? Well, it doesn't matter. God controls them all. The nations are in his hand. There is no land rich enough to save humanity. Even different, I mean, haven't we gone to space exploration now? Well, Earth has betrayed us. Let's, let's move on to another planet. Is that the kind of new? Uh, I heard about Trump wanting to have the Space Force, which sounds, I like the name, the Space Force, but we're, we're moving on. Maybe we can find richer land somewhere else, maybe in another planet. Uh, that is not the savior of humanity, I'm just going to have to tell you. There is one savior of humanity, and his name is Jesus Christ. That's what we need. See, the land is broken, people are broken, nations are broken, leaders are broken. Why? To show us that there is only one who rules and reigns. There's only one. Never to be substituted by another. Just a few things here. People live and die at the hand of God. You know that already, right? Live and die at the hand of God, both? Both? See now, this is Deuteronomy 32, 39. See now that I, even I, am he. There is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. There is none that can deliver out of my hand. That's a strong God. That's a sovereign God. Solomon goes on in Ecclesiastes 9 talks about how there is uh, an evil that he sees. He's always, always about these uh, observations, right? The observation that he notices is this. Whether you're a really good person or a really bad person, you know what happens to everybody? You die. There's someone who offers sacrifices every day and someone who doesn't offer ever in their life a sacrifice. You know what happens to them? They die. He says, isn't that strange? Nations rise and fall at the hand of God. We know this. If you've been with us through this study in Isaiah, has that not been one of the major themes that nations rise and fall at the hand of God? Rise and fall at the hand of God. Daniel 4:31 and 32. You know this one. While the words were still on the king's mouth, there was a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, as you spoke, it the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. Remember, this was that situation where his hair grows all nasty and his nails get all long, a really gross-looking sight. This is what happens to him right here. You will be driven from among men. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox for a period of seven, and it shall pass over you until you know, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men and gives them to whom he will. That's, that's God. That's the one who is exalted. That's the one who's on the throne, who gives the kingdoms to whoever he will, the kingdoms of men. He gives them to whoever He will. Land is blessed and cursed at the hand of God. Isn't this all three things that we saw, by the way? We see people, we see nations, and we see the land. It's all cursed here in Isaiah 33. But the land is blessed and cursed at the hand of God. You remember Genesis 3, 17 and 19. Adam, To Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, you have eaten of the tree which I commanded you. You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. So who blessed the land to begin with? God. And who cursed it? God. So all these things that we think can save us, rulers, nations, kingdoms, the land, whatever it is, who controls all of that? God. So who is really our Savior? God himself and not the things, not the land, not the leaders, not the structures, not the nations. No, God himself. You can read more about that in Romans 8, 20 and 22 as well. All this is to say, exalt the Lord that He might be put in His rightful place. He says, "Hear what I have done; acknowledge My might." Could it be that God is at work in our lives, and yet we never really seem to acknowledge all the workings of God in our lives? Could it be? You say, "Well, oh, yeah, all the time." I mean. How much do we acknowledge God's working today? When you woke up and you were able to breathe, who gave you that breath? Your body woke up functioning this morning, at least somewhat, because you're here. Jesus Christ. The one who created all things. By whom and for whom all things exist that includes me and it includes you have we exalted the exalted king in our hearts that's the question isn't it let's look at the last bit of our text this morning this is verses 15 through uh, no it's not the last bit excuse me 15 through 19 we're not there yet I got your hopes up real quick Sorry. 15 through 19 let's look at it it says Who is able to dwell with this God who does all that He pleases? Who is able to dwell with Him? This is the answer: He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, who despises the gain of oppressors, who shakes his hands lest they hold a bribe, who stops his ears from hearing a bloodshed, they shut their eyes from looking on evil. He will dwell on the heights; his place will be of defense, and his fortress rocks. His bread will be given to him; his water will be sure. Your eyes will behold the king and his beauty. They will see his land that stretches far. Your heart will muse on the terror. Where is he who is counted? Where is he who weighed the tribute? Where is he who counted the towers? You will see no more the insolent people, the people of an obscure speech that you cannot comprehend, stammering in a tongue that you cannot understand. What is the point of all of this? He's saying, who can dwell with this God? Well, the one who is righteous. And to that we say, man, I'm out of luck. Because how many among us are there who is righteous? None. Not one. So you say, well, how do we dwell with this God then? So when God comes and he's not sparing anything in his wrath because he is just, how can we stand with this God? Because it's only he who is righteous who can stand with this God. And I'm not righteous. He who speaks uprightly. All your speech is upright. Who would pass that test? Not not one of us. You despise gain. It's not us, is it? How can we take refuge in Him? How can we dwell with Him? How can I call out to the Holy God of the universe and Him hear me and not pour out His wrath on me, but instead His favor? We need righteousness that's not of our own, don't we? This is in your notes. Mankind's requirement of righteousness is completed by God Himself. We need to be righteous in order to stand with God, but we can't produce righteousness of our own, and so God creates righteousness and freely gives it to us. Romans 1 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, of Jew first and then also the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. From faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Well, how, how, who are the righteous? You say, well, I have faith in God. But yeah, where does righteousness come into play? We need a righteousness that is not our own. Where does it come from? Do, so am I saved by the Spirit of God? Spirit of God comes in me and I start to do good I start to bear fruit and that's the righteousness that it's talking about the good that I do no because I was already saved before I started doing good so how did I get in God's good favor I was only bad up until that point and God saved me so it must have had nothing to do with anything I ever did because I'm not good I'm not righteous no one is righteous before him not you, not me, not any other person you could possibly think of throughout all of history except for one, Jesus Christ. We needed a Savior because we are not good. Only God is good. So here's what happened. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, for sinful man, He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He made Jesus Christ, who was not sinful at all, no sin in him. He made him to be sin on our account. And in place of that, the roles were reversed. Instead of us now being a sinner, we now have righteousness. This is called imputed righteousness. That means that there was nothing good in us, but there was everything good in Christ. You say... I need some of that. I need some of what Jesus has. In fact, I want all I can get. Because if I don't have it, I can never be accepted by God. And so what he does is he says, Here, I'm going to send my son who is perfectly righteous. He will die on a cross. Why die? Because only sinners die. He's dying for your sin, not his own. So Jesus Christ dies on the cross. And then because he was perfect and because he was God, God raised him back from the dead. And now he's seated in heaven, conquering sin and death. And now he says have faith in me. And at the point of faith, all the righteousness that is in Christ will be put to your account. And all the bad that you ever did, past, present, future, will be laid on him so that no longer are you seen as the sinner, but you are seen as the righteous. In fact, you become the righteousness of God. Amazing. That's the essence of the gospel, by the way, if you've ever heard different person who was telling you that was mistaken that is the gospel that sinful man was saved by perfect God not because of anything you did but because of everything that he did that is the gospel so who can dwell with holy God those who walk righteously well thank goodness we have just been given free righteousness we have just been given free righteousness how by faith in Christ we have become the righteousness of God. So we are those who can dwell with God? Well, we can by faith in Jesus Christ. Who can withstand his burning and his fury? Well, we can if we have faith in Christ. But no one else can. They will be utterly consumed by his fury. And now, our last section of text 20 through 24. Behold Zion, the city of our appointed feast. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent. So, just to make sure we understand, we saw a crushed, ruined, chaotic city, right? And now we're seeing a perfect city. That's what happens in verse 20. Now we're seeing what it should be. Behold Zion, the city of our appointed feast. Your eyes will look on Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation. Isn't that what we all want? An immovable tent whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords ever be broken, but the Lord in majesty will be for us a place of broad rivers, streams, where no galley or oars or nor majestic ship can pass. Verse 22, For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king. He will save us. Your cords hang loose, they cannot hold the mass firm in its place or its sails spread out. They pray in the spoil and abundance, they will be divided. Even the lame will take the prey. No inhabitant will say, I am sick. The people who dwell there will be, well, we're not talking about physical things anymore all of a sudden. The people of that place will be healed physically. That's not what it says, is it? That's not the point. That's not the problem. The people will be forgiven their iniquity. That is the problem. Sin is the problem, and it's a problem common to all humanity. We must, then... Find our hope of salvation in the creator rather than the creation. Isn't that what this whole text has been about? How can I be saved from Assyria? Uh, You need gold and silver. Okay, let me get some gold and silver. The best, any way I can. Trying to buy myself out of trouble. And you get it, but oh, this threat is still there. They're still coming after me. Okay, so I've been taken down to the bottom. I have nowhere else I can go. I have nothing else I can do. My army cannot defeat their army. What what would you have me do, God? And what does He say? Look to Me for salvation. Look to Me. I'm the only one that can save. Don't you see that the Assyrians are in My hand anyway? Can't you see that your sickness is in His hand? Can't you see that your doubts are in His hand? All your troubles, the job you lost, the person you lost, whatever it is, can't you see that that is in His hand? So why are you looking to other things other than God to save you from that? It's not going to work. Look to the God who is king over all things, all things, all things. There is not one thing in all of human history that has ever escaped his sovereign hand. So why look to the creation? People, rulers, nations, money, knowledge, wisdom, education, whatever it is for you. Why do you look to that to save you when there is a sovereign God who can save you? So the systems, the structures, the actions, the powers of man are continually proven to be inadequate to us so that we might fully rely on God rather than ourself for salvation. Do you see that happening in your own life? Stuff completely breaks down so that you don't rely on it anymore but you rely on God and doesn't that hurt you in that time Peter says 1 Peter 1 6 and 7 in this you rejoice though for a little while if necessary you have been grieved by various trials why because Satan's in charge and bad stuff is happening is that the answer given Sorry, I'm, I'm in the heaven. I'm doing the best I can here, guys. I'm God. i got a lot going on. Is that his answer? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, though it perishes, it's tested by fire, that it may be found to result in the praise and the glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The well, Stuff happening in your life is meant to put you to a place to where you can exalt God in your heart as the sovereign king of the universe. If you're at a different place than that right now, it is the mercy, listen, it is the mercy and grace of God on your life that He might cut you down, that you might only be able to look up and see Him as king. It is God's mercy that sends these things on your life, that you might be humbled, because who among us would ever humble Himself just because? Just, I feel like humbling myself today. No. You say, I want to be the best. I want to. There's pride in the human heart. So it is the mercy and the grace of God that sends situations that humble you. That you can do nothing other than say, I have nothing. I own nothing. I am nothing. And I give and I look to him who all things are in his hand. All things. He alone is my salvation. And he alone will be exalted in my heart. Let's pray.